Well, good morning. We're going to be in Romans 8 this morning. We're going to be looking at the question, what does it mean to be a child of God? Out of Romans 8. And there's a great joy in being with people you've known a long time. Uh, this morning, you know, uh, thinking about Valley Bible Church, Pastor Phil's known me since I was a kid. Uh, the very first people uh, that greeted me in the parking lot this morning were the Lenways, or uh, Robert Lenway, and he's known me since I was a kid, and I saw Eileen and Andrew here this morning, and, and there's a great joy in that, that reunion of people you haven't seen in a while that you've known for a long time because uh, you have that, that connection, that, that almost family atmosphere, and it's, it makes sense because the church is a family of God. We are the family of God, and, and I know this to be a characteristic of Valley Bible Church that you are like a family to one another. Uh, everybody that, that I talk to over the years that has had connections to Valley Bible thinks of it as a family. I pastor with uh, Frank Griffith in Brentwood, and he talks about the early days of Valley and how uh, poor Judy, uh, he would have all the guys over to his house till all hours of the night studying Greek. And he even had a motorcycle in his family room one time, and poor Judy had to deal with that as he's sitting there having Bible study and, you know, being frank. But this family atmosphere that, that exists is because we are a family of God. We're brothers and sisters in the Lord, and, and this is true around the world. You, you go visit missionaries, you, you visit works in other places, and immediately there's a bond because of the commonality that we have in Christ. Because we have this common confession that Christ is Lord. And, and also we have this, this common work of those of us who've been united to the Lord Jesus Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit. We are adopted sons and daughters of God the Father. And so we want to spend some time this morning looking at this question, what does it mean to be a child of God? What does it mean to be a child of God? My desire is that you would see that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of adoption and that He's the one who makes us children of God. Not only that, my desire is that you would not only understand, but you would feel the reality of what it means to be a child of God. That, that God as your Father would not be something you give mere verbal recognition to in your statements, but that when you are pressed with the trials of life, when you are under great suffering or sorrow, you would instinctually know, God, you are a Father in heaven who loves me, who is for me, who is not against me. You haven't abandoned me. You haven't forsaken me. You haven't forgot about me. You're not distracted with somebody else. You are right here in the midst of it, and you love me, and you have designed this for my joy and for your glory. And so this is what I hope to see this morning you know, but some of you here this morning, you may, when you think of the idea of a father, it may not be a good picture. Some of you here may have had fathers who, who were in the home, but it was almost like when they were there, they weren't there because they were aloof and they were cold and they didn't show affection and all they did was work hard to pay for the bills and then they sat in their chair and watched their TV and said, don't bother me, go outside. Others of you may have had a father who was abusive, a father who was angry, a father who hurt you. Others of you may never have had a father. You may have been abandoned by your father and left to your own devices, left with your mother, put in orphanages, put in foster care. 
And so your idea of what a father is, is, is something that is very, very a bad memory. It's, it's brokenness. It is not health. I want you to know God is not a father like that. He's not. He's a perfect father in heaven. And he's the type of father in heaven that even those of you who had good fathers, hopefully you would see that the only reason they were a good father is because they resembled the father. Well, let's turn to Romans chapter 8. We're going to be in verses 14 to 17 this morning, but I actually want to go ahead and start in verse 1. And I want to read for you most of this chapter leading up to it to give you the context. Verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's laws. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh. But in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. And anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now here's our text. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. What a text. Paul explains that in both position and nature, because the Spirit of God has been poured into us, we have been set free from the guilt and dominion of the flesh. And so then he exhorts us to put to death the deeds of the body in verse 13 and to be led by the Spirit in verse 14. So... What does it mean to be a child of God? First thing we see in verse 14, as sons and daughters were being led by the Spirit. Verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And of course, you know this word for in verse 14 points back to the basis and explanation in verse 13. 
The only explanation for those who are radically obedient to God is that they're being led by the Spirit of God. So what does this mean, being led by the Spirit? It doesn't mean simply to be guided by the Spirit, although that's definitely part of it. It doesn't mean that the Spirit is a tool or a weapon that we wield. It means our whole life, our whole mind, and our, all of our emotions are determined by the Spirit. The Spirit of God is the one who is leading us because He's caused us to be born again. This is the conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus in John 3. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God, much less enter it. And so he explains, you must be born again. The Holy Spirit has to come and implant new life into your heart so that you are made a new creature. And he does this by uniting you to the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. 2 Corinthians 5. And so this is what the Spirit does. This is the picture of new birth. This is the picture in the gospel of the blind being given sight, of the lame walking, of the deaf hearing, of the dead raised. So Paul says in Ephesians, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, made us alive together with Christ. We've been made alive. We've been born again. We are saved by grace through faith, that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. And the way that God gives us this gift is by grace through faith, through the work of the Holy Spirit as he imparts new life to us. So, as sons and daughters were led by the Spirit. Notice he says in verse 14, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now, the word Paul uses here for son is an important word. It's a word that meant you are the heir, the firstborn. In the Jewish culture, the firstborn son is the one who got all the money, he got all the land, he got all the animals, and all the other kids. Tough luck. You're on your own, or hope your older brother is nice. And so this idea of sonship, this idea of sonship is the idea of inheritance. This idea of inheritance, and, and what Paul, when he uses this word, he's, he's basically saying the reason that you and I are sons of God, so, so my dear sisters in the Lord, don't get upset that you're called a son. It means you are someone who has an inheritance in God. And the reason you are a son of God is because you're connected to the Son of God, Jesus Christ, by faith. He's the one who's going to inherit all things. And because we're in Him, we also inherit all things. And if that gives you heartburn to be called a son of God, ladies, us men are called the bride of Christ, so... All of our life, all of our mind, all of our emotions are determined by the Spirit. And remember, the Holy Spirit is not a force. He is a person, the third person of the Godhead. And we're in His hands. He is not in ours. We don't tell Him what to do. 
Killing sin by the Spirit, verse 13, means we have a mindset of faith in the blood-bought promises of God through the Holy Spirit as He works to free us from the power of sin in our lives. And so the way we kill sin is with the superior affection of Christ. We crowd out sin. It no longer becomes attractive to us because Christ is more attractive. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. This is what John taught, that the Spirit comes to shine a floodlight on the Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to declare the things of Christ and speak of Him and make Him glorious. John 14, 26. John 15, 26. The Spirit's ministry is to highlight the Lord Jesus Christ. And He does that by causing us to be born again so we have new spiritual eyes. We have new sight. We see Christ for who He is. And now we desire Him. Look at verse 14 again. Those who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Now there's another word for son that the New Testament uses. John uses it in 1 John a number of times. The word technia, it means children of God. And if the word huios, the word for son here means we have inheritance, the other word for sons and daughters, children, it means the idea that we are beginning to bear the family resemblance. You see, this is what was lost in the garden. Adam was made in the image of God. But the image of God in us because of the fall was marred. It wasn't destroyed. It wasn't obliterated, but it was marred. It was it was tamped down. It was obscured because of sin. Now Christ came and he is the image of God, Colossians 1.15 tells us. Hebrews 1.2, he is the exact representation of his nature. And Christ lived on this earth as a perfect man and he died as our substitute. And by faith when we're united to him, now the spirit has caused us to be born again. So not only are we first born inheritors of the kingdom, but we also begin to resemble the father in heaven. The image of God is being renewed in us. It's being restored in us. So you know what the children of God do? The reason they kill sin in verse 13 is because now they hate sin. Just as God is holy, they want to be holy. They begin to have the values, the priorities, the preferences, the tastes of their father. In other words, we begin to look like our father in heaven. The older I get, if you know my dad, he's sitting back there, I, I begin to look more and more like him. It's a little distressing sometimes, you know. You want to be your own man. And I'm just being conformed into his image the older I get. The result of a Christian's conduct, because they're born again, is not only do they belong to the family of God, but they act like they belong. They act like they belong. Uh, you know this is true. Uh, we have the neighborhood kids come into our house left and right. They're always over. I think it's wonderful. But over time, they learn the house rules. They learn the family preferences, the family cultures. They learn what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. And over time, if you have them over enough, they begin to take on family characteristics, good or bad. Here we have Paul saying, the Spirit of God leads the children of God, the sons of God, so that in verse 13, they kill sin in their lives. They want to be like their Father in heaven. And the 
purpose, the reason Paul wrote this, is he wanted to fill the Roman believers' hearts with joy. And by application, it's in the Word of God, your hearts ought to be filled with joy this morning because of this reality. If you are battling sin in your life, take heart, Christian. It means you're a child of God. The Spirit of God is the one who provokes that battle. And so don't be discouraged. If the longer you're a Christian, you, you, you realize the, the, more, the farther I have to go, it seems like I'm never going to reach it. But the other thing is Christ gets so much more glorious and sufficient because he gives you the power, the power to battle sin. But we're never going to arrive in this life. So don't get discouraged. Those sins that beset you, that you thought you put away in your youth, that now are coming back to haunt you, don't get discouraged. It doesn't mean you're out of the family. The Spirit of God is provoking in you a battle to kill that sin. And the way He's going to do it is He's going to stir up a greater affection for Jesus than for that sin. Does this bring joy to your heart? This ought to give you hope in the midst of fear and anxiety. Being led by the Spirit is being moved by the Spirit to kill sin by trusting in the superior worth of the Father's love. And you know where you see the Father's love? At the cross. God so loved the world, He gave a Son. Is the Spirit leading you into war with sin? Do you look like your Father in heaven? Are you becoming more like Him? Then take heart. You're a child of God. So, the first thing we see, what does it mean to be a child of God? We're led by the Spirit. Secondly, in verses 15 and 16, what does it mean to be a child of God? As children, the Spirit stirs up family affections for God as Father. You see, God, Paul's goal here is to bring joy to your hearts, not just to your head. How do I know that? Verse 15, it says... You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. First thing he says, when you receive the spirit, he's not a spirit of slavery. He is not a spirit of slavery. Well, what is this spirit of slavery? Turn back one chapter, Romans 7, verse 6. But now we're released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in a new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What I take this to be here, this spirit of slavery, is the human spirit, our human spirits, enslaved to sin, condemned under the letter of the law that brings about fear. You just read the Ten Commandments. And if you take them halfway seriously, you realize you're condemned because you've broken them all. And the spirit of slavery is the spirit that says, I stand condemned, so I don't want to draw near God because I know he's going to judge me and punish me. But see, this is the good news of the gospel, Christian. The spirit is not a spirit of slavery leading you again to fear. Why? Because Christ paid it all. So now you can draw near to the Father. You can approach the throne of grace with confidence. And that Greek word is a wonderful word, parousia. It means boldness. It means bold 
confident access with God the Father. How is that possible? You're a sinner because Christ paid it all. And now when the Father looks at you, he sees the righteousness of his Son. Because 2,000 years ago, Jesus died for sin. And by faith, you're united to him. And you're declared justified, righteous in his sight. And you can receive mercy and grace to help in your time of need, Hebrews 4.12 says. So we are not led under slavery again. What Paul is saying is this, if I could put it in my own words. When the Holy Spirit implanted new life in you, verse 15, it was not a spirit of bondage so that you would be under fear again because the Holy Spirit is the spirit of adoption. I think too many Christians live under bondage unnecessarily. Now, there is a bondage to sin. If you're living in sin, you're going to be in bondage. And God is a father who disciplines his children. My dear sister Annie, who sang this morning, reminded me to mention that. Because she heard the first sermon. And it's true. Every child the Lord receives, he scourges, Hebrews tells us, because he's a good father. But what Paul is getting at here is not that reality. He's getting at the reality of those Christians who think that they should live under fear that God has his thumb over them and he's ready to snuff them out at any moment. As if the Father in heaven has a frown on his face every day you live. He's just waiting for you to mess up so he can smack you around. See, that's earthly fathers. That's not the Father in heaven. Father in heaven has made a way for the righteous requirement of his holy character to be satisfied. That's what Romans talks about. It was satisfied when Christ went to the cross. And when we're united to him and we're given the spirit, the spirit is the spirit of adoption. And we don't yet see this, right? We, we know we're adopted. We know we're a part of the family. But, but the inheritance is in the future. The new earth is in the future. Seeing the Father is in the future. So sometimes we fall back into fear again. Oh, man, I've sinned one too many times, and God's going to kick me out of the family. He's going to disown me. He's, gonna, he's just going to decide he's done with me and put me off. He's going to work on his other kids. I'm not the favorite child. I'm the, I'm the unwanted child. Give me just a little cubbyhole under the stairs to live in and a little slot to feed me through. That's not the Father in heaven. It's not how he is. Because he says in this passage, listen to this, verse 15. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You've received the spirit of adoption. Now you might have a note in your margin that says a spirit or the Holy Spirit. It's because the word panuma in the Greek could be translated either way. But let's turn over to Galatians 4, 6. This is the parallel passage. Paul teaching on the same thing in Galatians 4, 6. Actually, let's begin in verse 3. In the same way also when we were children, we're enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. 
And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is what I want you to understand and I want you to understand it not just in your mind. I want you to understand this instinctually. So that when suffering happens, when the cares of this life weigh you down, when you lose your job, when you lose your health, when your kids abandon you and forsake you, when your, when your marriage breaks up, you don't believe that God is the one who's punishing you and angry with you. But instead you say, I know my Father in heaven loves me. And he has allowed this to happen for his glory and my joy. And I don't understand it and I don't understand what's going on. But whatever my Father in heaven ordains is right. You see, this is what we need to understand as Christians we're not in a spirit of fear. We're in a, we have the Holy Spirit of adoption. And what his ministry does is he sheds abroad the love of God the Father in our hearts, Romans 5.5. 5. Right? This is, this is what he does. I've, I've heard Pastor Phil say it a number of times. God kicks over a bucket of love in your hearts by the Holy Spirit. This is what he does. We should not live in the fear of a slave, but with the affection of a son, affection of a daughter. If you're living the Christian life with a slavish fear toward God, he wants you to understand, instead of fear, you should have confidence and peace and joy. You should have a happy affection for God as Father. And I understand, uh, for some of you, if you've had a terrible relationship with your Father on earth, it is hard to understand this at the level of, when you're squeezed by trials. But you don't have to drum this up. You don't have to produce this in your own strength. Why? The Holy Spirit is the spirit of adoption. He's the one that's going to cause you to cry out, Abba, Father. When you're broken, when you're at the end of yourself, when you have nowhere left to turn, and you have no resources and no strength, He's the one who's going to stir up in your hearts the cry of, Abba, Father, I need your help. And the thing we need to remember is He hears us. He hears us. We're His children. He's given you His Spirit who confirms and makes real to you this legal transaction of adoption that you have an inheritance so this is what the Spirit does. He's the Spirit of adoption. Then in verse 16, the Spirit testifies with our spirit. Back in Romans chapter 8, verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. See, this is what the Spirit does. He doesn't get you to kill sin by making you a slave who acts out of fear. Oh, I'm going to kill sin in my life because I'm afraid God's going to judge me and he's going to slap me around he's going to just put the smack down on me and so i'm not going to sin that's not what the spirit does the spirit gets you to kill sin by making you understand that you are a son and a daughter of god the father and instead you act out of faith and affection for him that's what i was saying a little bit earlier love of sin is squashed it's stifled it's, it's weaned because love of Christ is so much greater. 
and the love of Christ, the work of Christ, the cross, his burial, his resurrection, his exaltation, his priestly ministry, him as king over all the earth, king of kings and lord of lords, all of that is a demonstration of the love of God the Father. Remember what Jesus told Philip? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So if you understand the love of Christ, what you need to then understand is that is a reflection, that is a direct correlation to the love of the Father for you. This idea that God the Father, the God of the Old Testament, is a vengeful, angry God who is full of wrath, and the God of the New Testament is seen in Jesus, and he's a God of love, it's hogwash. The triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, who've existed in an eternal relationship of love, love for one another, love that is indestructible, love that is immeasurable, love that is everlasting. What they did was they made their love manifest in the creation and in the redemption. And what we experience is an overflow of the love of God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And by faith and union with Christ, we're brought into this love relationship. So now we experience the love of God. The Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And as I said, he does this in two ways. First, Romans 5, 5. Turn back there. He brings God's fatherly love to us. Hope does not put to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. The Spirit brings God's fatherly love to us. Secondly, the Spirit in Romans 8.15, testifying with our spirit, awakens our childlike affection for God as Father. He stirs up family affections. That's why it says back in Romans 8.15, we cry out, Abba, Father. We cry out. The word kradzo, it means to, this is a, a cry. This is something that, that comes out of us that we can't help but express. It's not simply a rational conclusion, a belief in an external testimony. This is truth that's deeply felt and intensely experienced. Abba, Father. This is what the Spirit does. He corrects our understanding of what a father ought to be. And even the best of fathers, even the ones that desire to glorify the Lord, they still sin and blow it. How many times I've felt guilty because I've treated my kids as if they're under the law. I've lived in, in anger and disapproval because they aren't living up to the rippy name. Rather than saying, you're my child. And I love you because of who you are to me, not because of what you do. Now I may discipline you, I may punish you, I may have you suffer the consequences of your decisions, but you are my child, and I love you, and I will never abandon you, and I will never forsake you. Why? Because that's how my Father in heaven treats me. This is why Paul later in this chapter, by the way, says, Romans 8, 31, what are we going to say to these things? If God the Father, it doesn't say Father in that verse, but that's who it is. If God is for us, who is against us? 
He who did not spare his son, but delivered him up for us all, how, we, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Not some things. Not partial inheritances. All things. And this word Abba, this is a wonderful word. It's a word Jesus used constantly in reference to the Father. And in adopting us, God the Father hasn't taken half measures. He's given us a status comparable to that of Christ himself. The Father delivered up the Son for us. And as Jesus, think about the garden. He's kneeling in the garden. He's pouring out his cries to Abba, to the Father. He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, but yet not as I will, but as you will. And the incredible thing is that the will of the Father to crush the Son and have Him drink this cup of wrath, this isn't from a stern lawgiver. When the Father says, my will for you, my Son, is to go to the cross to be a sacrifice, to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As Isaiah 53 says, that it pleased the Lord to crush Him. This wasn't from a stern lawgiver threatening vengeance or some impersonal force of fate from before there's no alternative. This is the Father in heaven who loves the Son eternally and infinitely. Pastor Tom Smale says this, the Father whom Jesus addresses in the garden, he's the one that Jesus has known all his life to be found bountiful in his provision, reliable in his promises, and utterly faithful in his love. He can obey that will that sends him to the cross with hope and expectation because it's the will of Abba whose love has been so proved that it can now be trusted so fully by being obeyed so completely. In Gethsemane, the obedience springs from trust. And therefore in Calvary, it's able to rest in that trust again. On the cross, you remember the last thing he said? Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Trusting in the love of the Father the Lord Jesus. You see, and the obedience for us is the same. It springs from trust. Knowing who God is, He's our Father in heaven. The Spirit's ministry is to make real this reality that we are a child of God, to stir up family affections so that we cry out, Abba, Father, I want you to get this. We don't infer logically the fatherhood of God from the testimony of the Spirit. We enjoy emotionally the fatherhood of God by the testimony of the Spirit. The testimony of the Spirit is not a premise from which we deduce that we're children of God. It is a power by which we delight in being children of God. He is doing this in us. He is stirring up family affections. The hardest thing about this, of course, as we think about God as Father and and being tempted to fall back into fear and slavery and, and tempted to think that He's just ready to punish us, we have to go back to the gospel. We have to go back to the promises of God that we see in the Scriptures and remind ourselves of what's true. Satan would love to convince you that God is not, is not for you anymore. He might have been for you in the past, but not today. Satan tries to lie and teach you that that all that sin you've committed, man, it is not dealt with. That now you're on thin ice. God is going to abandon you. He's going to forsake you. Look at all that guilt you have within you. The Spirit of God combats those lies 
by reminding us that God is Father. He does it. He reminds us that God is Father. Third thing we see, what does it mean to be a child of God? The first one, we're led by the Spirit. Second, the Spirit is stirring up family affections. Third, we have a glorious inheritance. As sons and daughters, we have a glorious inheritance. This is what it means to be a child of God. Romans 8, verse 17. If children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Think about this reality. If we are children, then we're heirs. If we're children, then we're heirs. And the kind of inheritance we have as sons of God is we are, he says, co-heirs with Christ. So there's no partial inheritances. This is so often the way we think of our future inheritance, right? We, we think of uh, maybe wills on this earth. I'm the oldest child, and I married an oldest child, and, and I had a bunch of kids, and so I had pretty good leverage in the will. Got all these kids, but then my siblings and my wife's siblings began to have kids, and they multiplied like rabbits, and then now I'm losing my leverage. I used to have the most grandchildren. Not anymore. Now I'm just one of many. My kids are one of many. And some of us, we think the will of God, the, the inheritance of God, that it's that way, that there's, there's not enough for all of us, or that somehow we're just going to get a part, of, a part of heaven. You know, yeah, in, in the Father's house there are many rooms, but man, mine's going to be a little one. No, it's not a partial inheritance. Look what this verse says. If children, then heirs. What does that mean? Paul explains. We are heirs of God and we are co-heirs with Christ. What is the inheritance of Christ as the Son of God? Everything. What do we get as co-heirs? Everything. We've been seated in the heavenly places in Christ with Jesus, Paul tells us in Ephesians, that we've been raised with Him and seated with Him, and that we have this inheritance. It's the, the hope to which He's called us. And it's, it's going to be given to us uh, Charles Spurgeon, pastor called the Prince of Preachers, who lived 150 years ago, he says this about this passage. I just want to read you this. What riches? If we could say this morning that all the stars belong to us, if we could turn the telescope to the remote, remote of the fixed stars and could say with the pride of possession so natural to man, that star a thousand times bigger than the sun, that belongs to me. I'm the king of that inheritance. If we could sweep the telescope along the Milky Way and see the millions upon millions of stars that lie clustered there together and could cry, all these are mine. Yet these possessions were but a speck compared to that which is in this text. Heir of God. He to whom all these things are but as nothing gives himself up to the inheritance of his people. Note a little further concerning the special privilege of heirship. We're joint heirs with Christ. That is, whatever Christ possesses as heir of all things belongs to us. Splendid must be the inheritance of Jesus Christ. Is he not very God of very God, Jehovah's only begotten Son, most high and glorious, though he bowed himself to the grave? 
What angelic tongue shall hymn his glory? What fiery lips shall speak of his possession, of his riches, the unsearchable riches of God in Christ Jesus? But, beloved, all that belongs to Christ belongs to Christ's people. It's as when a man does marry. His possessions is shared by his spouse. And when Christ took the church unto himself, he endowed her with all his goods, both temporal and eternal. He gives us his clothing. We stand arrayed. His righteousness becomes our beauty. He gave to us his person. It's become our meat and drink. We eat his flesh and drink his blood. He gave us his inmost heart. He loved us even to death. He gave us his crown. He gave us his throne. He gave to us the fullness of joy, for my joy shall be in you and your joy may be full. I repeat it, there is nothing in the highest heaven which Christ has reserved unto himself, for all things are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. This is what we have. We have a glorious inheritance. And we are sons of God by virtue of our belonging to the Son of God, and we're heirs of God only by virtue of our union with the one who's heir of all God's promises, Jesus Christ, God the Son. This means as children of God, we are so identified with the Son of God, verse 17 says we're going to share not only in His glory, but we're going to share in His sufferings. Uh, Turn back to Romans 8 here. I want to read a little bit farther in the chapter. Because where does Paul go with this? He's just been explaining all of this, and then he says in verse 18, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. Paul, how can you say this? Paul, you've suffered greatly. You've been imprisoned. You've been stoned. You've been beaten with rods. You've been shipwrecked. You've been spent a night in the deep. You've been left for dead. You've been whipped. You've been imprisoned. How can you say the present sufferings are not worthy to be compared to the glory that's to be revealed to us? Because the Spirit of God is the Spirit of adoption, and He's been implanted in my heart, and the Spirit testifies with my spirit that I'm a child of God, and I have a glorious inheritance awaiting me. And that inheritance, by the way, is God in Christ. This is what we have For the creation waits, verse 19, with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. What a thought. Jesus learned obedience by the things which he suffered, and so it is with us. We're conformed more and more into the image of Christ as we grow through suffering, even if that suffering leads to death. We groan inwardly for the redemption of our bodies. And even if it leads to death, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord Jesus Christ. To live as Christ and to die as gain. This is what we have waiting 
Paul's point in this passage is to remind you, Christian, you have been so united to the Lord Jesus by the Holy Spirit of adoption that you're one with Him in His sufferings and you'll be one with Him in His glory. And so if you're suffering as a Christian, take heart. That qualifies you to join with Him in His glory, in the inheritance. When you doubt, you'll be one with Him in His glory. Remember, every trial that you're facing now is a witness of the Spirit that you're going to share the glory of the inheritance of the Son of God. You remember that story? The prodigal son comes to the end of his money, the end of his friends, the end of himself. He had spent it all on wasteful living. And he remembers, my father has a lot of land. He has a big house. And you know, I could be a slave in his house, and it'd be better than where I am now because I'm eating pig food out of a pig trough. So he goes home, and the father sees him a long way away. And in that culture, it was entirely inappropriate. It was not proper for the father to run to the son. The father according to the culture, should have stood there and waited for the son to come forward. He should have stood there and waited for the son to apologize and waited for the son to repent and waited for the son to ask for even to be a slave. That's how the son understood it. I don't, I'm no longer qualified to be his son, but maybe I could be a servant, a slave in his house. But what does the father do? He sees the son a long way off and he goes and he runs. He does what's improper in the culture and he runs to him and he lifts his head and he wipes his tears. And he says, my son's come home again. Kill the calf. Have a barbecue. We're going to have a party. You see, that's the heart of the father. Jesus is telling the parable. And I know there's the elder brother who so often we are. We're not the prodigal. We're the elder brother who sees the father's love as well. But see, this is the Father's heart. This is Jesus saying, you want to know what the Father is like? Listen to this story. He's one who saves those who are a long way off. And when they come home, he says, my son's come home again. I can have a party. And he's going to wipe every tear from our eyes. There'll be no more death and no more mourning and no more crying or no more pain. In fact, I want to turn to Revelation 21, and I want you to see this with your own eyes. Revelation 21, verse 4. In fact, let's start in verse 3. <laughs> this is what we sang about, isn't it? I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, Write this down. You can bank on this. You better write this down. This is trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. It is a done deal. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. All you have to be is thirsty. You don't need any money. God provides it all. And then listen to what he says here. This is the verse I wanted to get to. To the one who conquers. 
to the one who overcomes. He will have this heritage, this inheritance. I will be his God and he will be my son. You hear that? That's our inheritance. You know what it consists of? We're going to be with him forever. We're going to be made fit for his presence. We're going to be on this earth and we're going to see his glory and he's going to be our dwelling place. This is what it means to be a child of God. Are you a child of God this morning? If you're not, look at the next verse. Uh, this, I read this in the first service. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, the liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. If you are not a child of God, you're going to face physical death and you're going to face eternal death in the lake of fire. But God so loved this world, he gave a son. I mentioned this in the first service. A dear woman named Luella Ross, who went to this church for years and served in children's ministry for years, led me to the Lord when I was nine years old. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. She shared that with me, gave my life to Christ. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, it's a gift by faith. And all you have to do is embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior by faith, and you will be a child of God, part of His family. You will have refrigerator rights. You know what I mean? You will, you will have the ability to go in and have access to the Father and to His house. And no one will put you to shame. And no one will kick you out. And no one will say you're not welcome. Because this is who God the Father is. And He says, come to my Son. All you who are weary and heavy laden. Come to my Son. He'll give you rest. The Spirit of God his ministry is to open the eyes so that you would see the glory of Christ. And I pray that he would do it this morning. Child of God, you have the spirit of adoption. God is your father. May you know in your trials that he is for you and not against you. He loves you. And he has allowed this to happen for his glory and your joy. And so praise him. Praise him. Don't be angry with him. Don't shrink away. Don't fall back in fear. Praise him. Father, would you do this in our midst, I pray. You need to do it by your spirit, God. Oh, would you encourage my brothers and sisters. I don't know where they're at, Father, but you do. If they're so weary, if they feel like that you have abandoned them, that you have forsaken them or... You are ignoring them, Father. Remind them by your Spirit that this is not true. You are their Father who loves them, who gave a son. You love them so much you gave a son for them. And not only that, you poured out your Spirit as a down payment and pledge of our inheritance, Father. This is how much you love us. Oh, Father, minister to hurting people this morning by your Spirit. Remind them who they are in Christ. Remind them they're co-heirs with Him. Remind them of the gospel. Remind them of the hope of glory that they have to live as Christ and to die as gain. And though they lose everything in this world, they will never lose Christ and they will never lose your love because you have said it's going to be the case. 
Nothing can separate us from your love which is in Christ Jesus. Neither height, nor depth, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come. Nothing will be able to separate us from your love which is in Christ Jesus. Oh, Father, do a work in us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.